Hello, my friends. Mandy here with a quick invitation for you to join the Patreon for our show. We've recently switched up some of the benefits, including a new monthly workbook to go along with all the incredible content you're getting on the show. It's a quote yourself through grief kind of a vibe. And for only $10 a month, it is a wholly worthy and affordable way to invest in your own healing process without the commitment of a full coaching relationship. Learn more at patreon.com slash Mandy Capehart. And of course, the link is in the show notes. Thank you as always for being here. Now let's get into the good stuff. Welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart. You are listening to episode 97, titled The Bluey Approach with Lee Caterson. This week's episode is too relatable for those of us with little kiddos running around our lives, but whether or not you're a parent, you're going to appreciate the insight and perspective from my guest this week, because we all have to interact with younger humans now and then. Lee Caterson is a paramedic working at a children's hospital, a dad of three with one more on the way, and today we're just going to chat through navigating the natural ups and downs of life, loss, and grief including the way we can learn more through Bluey. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Restorative Grief. It's Mandy. I'm here with my friend, Lee. He is a great dude. I met him on Twitter. He's a paramedic. He works at a children's hospital, and he's a dad of three with one more on the way. So I thought it would be really fun to just invite another human being to talk about the ups and downs of life, loss, parenting, and all the things we can learn about through Bluey. Lee, I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> hey there. It's nice to be here. Yeah, it's a totally different environment today for us because uh, you're not a grief professional. You're a dad. <laughs> no. You're a, a dude out in the world just experiencing life and learning how to navigate it. And I think that your personal experience, both working in a hospital and then, of course, in and out of hospitals over time, is really going to lend itself to just an invitational space for people to come in and, and learn like, hey, you're not the only kind of person out in the world navigating really complex things. So why don't you give our listeners a little bit more context into who you are? Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm a paramedic. Um, I've been involved in EMS and fire for about 12 years now. Almost, Yeah, 12 years. I've worked in the pre-hospital setting on fire departments, and I've been in a children's hospital um, in the emergency department and their transport service uh, now for five years. Yeah, you know, yeah, five, almost six years. Um, that has afforded me some interesting situations. Um, and also, personally, I've been through, I mean, everybody's go through stuff, um, but I, I've had kind of an interesting childhood and then... Uh, in my late teens, I was diagnosed with melanoma, um, went through uh, five rounds with that, um, stage four, pretty much every time, all the choices that came with that. So that's kind of been a, a big part of how I go about my job in the hospital, I guess. I think that's beautiful. And I, yeah? okay. I love that last piece that you said about that affects your experience affects the way you show up in the hospital because it's easy for us to say, especially as grief professionals, right? That concept of wounded healers, we get into the work because we've experienced loss or we've experienced trauma in a way that we want to insulate others from going through it or be the person we needed when we were going through it. And so it's also very evident when you encounter someone 
in the field, you're in, in the field I'm in, who got into it cognitively or intellectually and never embodied the experience for themselves. Mm -hmm. Not that one way is necessarily better than the other. And I don't wish that everybody who goes through trauma becomes a professional by any means in that field. But there is a different level of access that you are able to get to in yourself in the way that you show up. How, How do you experience working with, with the people that you work with in a different way because of your story? So I actually, um, after, to, to give you the Reader's Digest version, had cancer at the end of my high school, um, went to college, had cancer a bunch of times, was on chemo, oral chemotherapy for like four years and everything. At the end of all of it, I was just done. And I said, I'm never going to a hospital even if I'm dying, I don't care what happens. I want nothing to do with the medical field. Um, it was actually so bad for me um, that if I smelled uh, hospital soap, I would start getting nauseous and I would vomit sometimes. And wow. yeah, uh, just the thought of anything in that realm was overwhelming. Um, I'd suddenly be back in the hospital bed on biochemotherapy, you know, wasting away. It felt like. Um, and so fast forward a few years and I meet a nursing student who's one of my friend's sisters and she kept telling me, Hey, you, you you would be perfect for this. You need to go do this. And now we're married and I've been in the field for a whole bunch, whole bunch of years. And, um, I think having that basically hatred for the medical field, um, helps me understand the patient side of things, especially with kids. Um, I've never met anybody who's like, Oh, I want to go to the hospital, but especially kids. Um, it's a big, scary place. It's, uh, it smashes their world essentially. Um, especially the younger ones. So they have like their little, their family is their world, their school. And that's really all they know. And now they're in this big place with all these new people and everything is going wrong. And even though I was older, I remember going to the hospital for the first time and just that overwhelming feeling. Uh, And when I could essentially, yeah, like you said, be the person that I needed to kind of calm things down and be like, Hey, here's what we're doing. It's going to be okay. One step at a time that um, makes, I mean, makes my day easier, but also makes their day easier uh, for them. Yeah. Yeah. My daughter is no stranger to the ER both for my sake and for her own. And I recently said, Hey, you broke the record. You're, she just turned nine. And I said, you are officially the winner. You have more hospital visits than I did by your age. And I had some hospital visits. Oh, that's not good. (laughs) But, and she's fine. You know, they're all sports. There's no frequent flyer miles for the hospital. Yeah, I know. I tried to explain. There's no punch cards. Listen, this is not a positive. Um, but I also didn't want to scare her and she's experienced mm-hmm. it in this very scary way and in mm-hmm. a very cool, I get to ride in the chair and everybody here is excited to see me because I, you know, again, they're impressed with my skills. I'm like, yeah, but you also hurt yourself pretty bad. So skills mm-hmm. or <laughs> it's very buzz light. You're falling with style, right? The, yeah. <laughs> But, oh, goodness. but I, you know, being able to explain to a child what the experience of a hospital is, is, is a gift because like you said, we need that person to really show up in a way that is invitational for us. Our only framework 
as children comes from the adults in our lives. And if they're scared and unable to say what's happening or going on, or they don't understand, or maybe they have their own baggage about hospitals, having someone on the other side that is not just focused on the medicine, just focused on recovery, just focused on, you know, triage is really a gift. So I'm curious how that has affected you. Not, not the fact that you work in a children's hospital, but how has the way you show up for kids in a hospital changed how you parent? Because I put myself in that same juxtaposition. I'm like, Ooh, I'm much better with other people's kids than I am with my own. Like that. Yeah, I, I would probably <laughs> agree with that. Um, I think this is kind of how it normally goes for most people. Yeah. Like you interact with somebody else's kids and you know, maybe five minutes, 10 minutes, and then you're, you're done. Whereas your kids are always there. So you have, you know, the, the past and everything, but with, um, when I started, at the children's hospital i only had my my daughter my oldest she's six and a half now um and she was she was pretty little at the time and so we i mean i wasn't really disciplining her or anything like that or you know really needing to correct much other than like hey get out of the dishwasher or whatever um but as she grew and as i interacted with these kids at work and also in children's hospitals there's um people that are called child life specialists uh they their job is essentially to kind of not just be a distraction but kind of alleviate the emotional mental stress and trauma of the whole situation and so learning things from them (laughs) about how to interact with kids and how to make all the stress better um definitely helped me um as a parent rather than especially given the way I was raised, my parents, you know, were both the type who would go from zero to a hundred real fast, screaming and yelling, all that stuff. Um, so when I saw how things could be in the hospital, I was like, I need to be more like that. I need to have the, the longer fuse, more patience. Um, so rather than, doing what was my natural inclination and imitate my parents. I was like, I literally, there was times in in, my wife also used to work at the same hospital. So she knew the same people. She knew all the same stuff. There would be times where we would look at each other and we would be like, we need to be like, you know, Laren, one of the child's life specialists or Kara or, you know, whatever. We would actually have that conversation about like, Hey, let's do this rather than, you know, yelling or whatever. Um, So I think having all that, exposure to kids in stressful situations probably made it less traumatic for my kids um because i had a better idea of how to be a parent essentially how to interact with them well and it sounds like you were even receiving a form of reparenting in through your teammates your coworkers, <laughs> and the people you're with and even just with these new interactions with each kid just learning something and and really choosing to be mm-hmm. present with them, to gain from them rather than just, okay, you're stable onto the ICU or wherever you need to go. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that was the biggest difference between how we say like the adult world and the peds world, pediatric world. Mm-hmm. Like when we go to the hospital, we are kind of a product. Like, yes, they're going to be human with us and they're going to you know do their best, but at the same time, we're all adults. And so with, with the kids, 
and with the, yeah, like you said, reparenting, it was exactly what it was learning so much. Um, sometimes it felt like, uh, my kids were kind of parenting me at times because I would see the reactions if I was frustrated with them and I'd be like, okay, hold on. Like now I've got to yell at myself <laughs> or whatever. And then we would go from there. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I'm so, I love to hear that. I love to hear that there are more positive interactions in, and I think that that's something we see, right? If you look about or look at the images we see on the outside is what's going on inside children's hospitals. There's characters coming through and making the kids happy. There are people bringing gifts. There's always someone in, in those settings. Like when I think of a children's hospital, that's what I think of. It's the St. Jude's that are full of people just happy to be there and fundraising and making children smile no matter their circumstances. And I think to one degree, that's great because it shows what's possible, but I think it also um, eliminates the very real situation that is often happening in children's hospitals too. So it's, mm -hmm. Um, it's interesting to hear that. Okay. I want to talk about Bluey because number one, Bluey might be the greatest cartoon of this generation right now. It is so damn satisfying every single time mm -hmm. I watch it. The way that those dogs <laughs> are written is so magical. And we started talking, I think, because I had finally learned about the band episodes or the, the ones that yeah. weren't, I don't think, I think the episode we chatted about wasn't necessarily available in the U S when I first heard about it. Cause I couldn't find it. Mm, um, okay. but now I think it is of course. And then, is, yes. so it's the episode about <clears throat> one of uh, bluey, right? Bluey and dad yep, and bluey <laughs> are walking and they find a bird mm -hmm. on the ground. Okay. You yep. tell it. Yeah, they start, the episode starts off, uh, Bluey is copying her dad, and dad goes for his morning little power walk jog, and she's imitating him. Um, the episode's called Copycat, so anybody listening, it's season one, episode 38, Copycat, if you want to watch it. Um, you might cry a little bit, but it's okay. Um, yeah, so they find this bird on the ground, uh, and Bluey sees it, and she's like, oh, dad, look, it's a bird. Oh, wait, it's on the ground. And um, So Bandit comes over, and it looks at it like, oh, it's been hurt. It's sick. So they get a box, take it to the vet. Um, Bluey is that little optimist that she is and how kids normally are like, oh, it's going to get better. And um, Then the vet or somebody comes out and tells her, no, it's and she like gets down on her level and tells her, oh, no, sorry, the, the bird died. Um, and then Bluey, her reaction, that whole interaction, actually, I thought was pretty cool. But um, her reaction was kind of you could see that she was sad and whatever. And she was very quiet on the ride home. And then uh, her and her sister bingo, they're talking about it and they play and they basically reenact the whole situation. Um, and Bluey is kind of like, Oh, you know, the bird, he died and whatnot. And then bingo, the little sister comes through and she's like, I'm alive. And comes running through the situation and totally different ending for her. And it's just kind of a, a really cute little, I mean, everything is cute about that show, but uh, I thought it was just an interesting way to talk about um, kids processing that grief and whatnot. One of the most valuable conversations on the show has been 
around children and grieving. Obviously parents are like, what the <laughs> hell do I do with my kid when we're yeah. grieving as a family, when they're grieving a loss? And as parents, I think are learning more about grief in their own lives. They're recognizing, oh, wait a minute. Now that I'm a little bit more outside of my situation, this affected all of my family, including my children. You know, when my mom mm -hmm. died now, seven years ago, it was kind of the same oh, thing. Wow. I realized, okay, my daughter was very little. And it's been interesting to see how she's internalized that loss um, and her own lack of relationship going forward. But I loved the way that this episode handled um, grief because we just don't talk about it with kids. We mm -hmm. don't know how to talk about it. And the way that this show made it approachable was actually really, it was so intelligent because it used um, the principle that I found really meaningful in Dan Siegel's book, The Whole Brained Child. Have you ever hmm. read this book? I haven't read it, but I've heard of it. Actually, It's so yeah. good. And in the beginning, it's talking about how um, a, there's a three or four year old that is in a car accident or finds, no, I'm sorry, finds out that their caregiver was in a car accident, but they're okay. And they continually bring back the conversation. Sadie, okay. Sadie in mm -hmm. car accident. Sadie, okay. And they're mm -hmm. reliving it because they're having difficulty understanding fear or understanding crisis or illness or injury or death and the finality mm -hmm. of it. And so that, that imaginative play used in this episode is so valuable because it allows kids to start to wrap their brain around it. Mm -hmm. um, kids tend to misinterpret death or misunderstand finality. How have you seen that play out? Oh, absolutely. One of the most recent ones was with my own kids when our, our dog got hit by a car uh, four months ago. This dog, her name was Kina. She was like one of the best things that ever happened to me, aside from my wife and my kids. And that's not an exaggeration. She was amazing. Um, and so when it happened, my three-year-old, I actually saw it happen. Um, and so he didn't understand um for probably a month he kept having that repetitive um he'd be like kina crashed kina crashed yeah car crashed kina um and then i had to be like yep that's that's what happened buddy and um we actually buried her in the backyard and everything and he yeah. was there with that and it moved from you know car crashed kina to Kina and dirt and I was like yes that is true that is what's happening you know he's I think finally just now starting to understand that you know what it means when we said Kina died and yeah. um we didn't want to use any of the the euphemisms we always use as adults to try to make it easier for ourselves. We don't want to be like, Oh, she, you know, she's gone over the rainbow on. bridge or she, yeah. yeah. Like she passed on, you know? And, um, cause we didn't want him to think like, Oh, well she went over the rainbow bridge. She's going to come back over the rainbow bridge. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Um, and that's one of the things that I think too many adults try to do. We do that for ourselves, but with kids, they don't have that, um, I don't really want to say it. A kind of self-soothing capacity. I don't know. Kids think about things differently. Like I said, that imaginative, imaginative play, but they don't really have a framework for death. 
mm-hmm. and stuff. So like with like in the hospital um, and whatever, like I've seen hundreds of people die pre-hospital, in hospital, you know, adults, kids, everything. Um, and the worst part of and I don't honestly, I don't deal with death. Well, <laughs> I take every single one of them really hard. Um, but the families, when they come in, especially if there's younger siblings or whatever, when they see the body or whatever the case may be, we've usually got to have a lot of people there to try to help them understand and work through it. Um, I've been in there for some of those. I'm on part of our, uh, I forget what, even with like the family help. Like one of my jobs is to help the family with things like that, to try to explain things and uh, whatever the case may be. And they don't, they don't always cry or anything like that. They're sometimes they're such in shock that they don't know what to do. Or if they do understand, they just cry and don't really talk much or, you know, whatever, however they process it. Um, but everyone's always like, oh, kids are so resilient because kids will like bounce back from those things. But then 15 years later, they're in therapy for the situation because they never got the chance to process it. No one ever helped them through it. Yep. And so kids are resilient. I would, I would say that's not wrong, but it's a very short time that they're resilient because they're trying to get back to their normal, back to the playing, what they're used to, but they don't really have in and of themselves, the ability to work through all that, understand it and cope with it in a way that's not going to be damaging in the long run, um, essentially. Right. Yeah. We, so much of what you said was spot on. The resiliency thing is so hard because resiliency is a learned skill. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't long ago. I had an expert in resiliency and its relationship to grief on the show. And we talked about how you can develop that (laughs) characteristic, but it is a cognitive practice that you are developing. And as children, what we see as resilience is actually compartmentalizing. They have this incredible ability to puddle jump from Mm -hmm. sad to happy, to confused, to angry, back to happy. Mm -hmm. And we also have kids that are, I mean, between five and nine, somewhere in there, depending on the child developmentally, that's about when they start to grasp the finality of death. Mm -hmm. And so you have these kids that are seeing their family in crisis and really scared because the parents don't know what they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. And they're trying not to disrupt what seems like the ultimate disruption in their parents too. So you've got children who Mm -hmm. desperately want to be seen and heard, but parents who don't have capacity for it. And so what we think is resilience is actually just dismissing everything that matters to your point so that they become Mm -hmm. adults and they're in trauma and going through this recognition of, wow, I have these attachment traumas because my parents couldn't be parenting for me, parents for me anymore after my sibling died or after their partner died, you just it's so exhausting. So what do we do about it? (laughs) Yeah. And a lot of times in those situations, those kids, you'll see them actually comforting their parents. Right. Um, I, one situation that uh, will actually, well, two that will never ever leave me. I think Um, we had a family, big family. They were in a car crash. Um, 
we at our, my fire department, we responded to it um, and we wound up transporting all of them in one ambulance because we didn't have anybody who could come. Oh. Uh, yeah. So I, yeah, that was a tough one. Thankfully, nobody was seriously injured. Um, there was broken bones, bumps, lots of bumps and bruises, and but nothing life-threatening. Um, but the parents were just like zombies. They were just, uh, and, and then the, I think it was a nine or 10 year old girl, their oldest was directing the show. She's like, all right, Bubby, you go over here to this room. You get in this chair. And the parents just didn't even know what to do. And then we get to the hospital and that nine-year-old's going room to room to room, checking on her siblings and her parents. And I'm just like, like that kid is amazing. Like she's got it. And then as we left the hospital, me and my partner were talking, we're like, she's going to remember this forever. And she's going to be in therapy in a few years. Cause it's, she's going to remember like her parents didn't know what to do. And she had to step up and kind of be the parent and, that happens, I think, a lot with kids um, because the parents are just experiencing such a shock and grief. Sometimes they just can't function the, you know, the fight or flight or freeze reaction. And a lot of them freeze because they just, it's just how they, they're wired. And kids try to, like you said, compartmentalize. They kind of say, you know, my parents need me. It's my turn to do something. That leads us to also ask the question is, in her regular everyday life as the oldest sibling of that many kids, is she parentified? Is she someone that is oh, always expected <laughs> to be doing what the other kids need when the parents mm-hmm. can't step in? That was a natural response, but it's also like an mm-hmm. invisible trauma that she'll be oh, yeah. processing. It, it's so frustrating because you see that and you want to say, well done, way to navigate well. And to a degree, there are I mean, I'm one of them, the people that can kind of shut everything off and do what Mm -hmm. is necessary in the moment and have their emotional response later. But I'm also someone that has learned the value of making space for the emotional response, for the adrenaline Mm -hmm. crash that inevitably I think pushes me even further (laughs) off the straight and narrow course I want to maintain because I have been trained to Mm -hmm. close my, and I'm sure as a paramedic, you experience that all day, every day. Yeah, we really do. And that was something that took me kind of a while to acquire because we don't really go, there's no mental health training in paramedic classes or anything. There's no anybody telling you how to process things. It's usually just hey, suck it up. We got another call or, you know, whatever the situation is. Um, You just got to kind of keep going until the end of the shift and then have your mental breakdown on the way home. (laughs) Uh, I worked on some busy departments. So there would be times where, we're working 24 hour shifts and we would have sometimes two or three people who died on our shift. And I'm trying to process the last one while I'm doing CPR on this one. And I'm like, I don't even know what's happening right now. Um, So for a long time, it kind of just compounded. And my, I was, I was a wreck for a while, (laughs) um, as you can imagine. Um, But got past it. But anyways, back to the whole compartmentalization and such um that's kind of uh, i guess like a coping mechanism <laughs> something we kind of have to do sometimes right and with my own kids with different situations like our dog dying and some other other things and whatnot like we've had to my wife and i we've had to do that compartmentalization with them too 
like we're gonna talk through this now with you you know we're probably gonna cry in the process and you know usually that's what happens with us too it's not easy I think it's natural though I think it's really 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 valuable to be able to talk to your children about saying hey compartmentalizing putting your head down and getting the work done and moving through it is a skill all of these are just skills that sometimes come in handier than others. Being able to emotionally show up and express yourself is a skill. Being able to support another person and not center yourself in what you're feeling, but actually listening to them, giving them space like parents get to do for their kids. That's a skill. And all of these things as we are you know, carrying incredible losses through our lives, it's such a practice. It's all just a practice. And when we give ourselves that permission to see parenting <laughs> as a practice, I mean, I mean, medical professionals sure. see it all as a practice. They're very wise in that regard of we're doing our best. This is, this is our best guess. I often wonder like how, when, when doctors are so confident, this is the diagnosis. This is, we've used 18 different tests. We are certain this is conclusive. My brain still says, but based on what, mm -hmm. like who decided that concluded that A and B concluded to C, who mm -hmm. decided that that's actually what you're dealing with and that this protocol for treatment is actually effective. And I mean, we have medical issues in my family, so I always have super suspicious questions about things, but, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think coming to terms with that and, and even going back to that whole brain child book, recognizing that we are constantly working not just to stay in our left brain or our right brain, but to integrate the two and allow ourselves to really have the balance of logic and creativity of fact and of curiosity and finding a way through the center of it that makes navigating grief a lot easier. The creativity and the curiosity with kids is so far beyond anything us as adults can understand usually i have seen kids walk through some some really traumatic things and they will kind of play through it <laughs> and yeah. they'll ask tons of questions and one of the things that i think was funny to me to learn is how intelligent kids actually are how much they actually understand um we had this, this is one story, this one patient we had this like 14 year old girl, I think, you know, teenage girl who had just been diagnosed with something uh, really terrible. I think it was some form of cancer. Um, she got diagnosed with that. And um, me as the cancer survivor, I got elected to go in and do her IV and blood work and whatever. And uh, so I normally avoid those patients because it's hard to look at someone with a new diagnosis and, you want to give them the, oh, hey, look, I had cancer too. I should have died too. And here I am. But you don't want to give them false hope. But anyways, so I'm talking with this this girl, just trying to get a feel for like, what, what does she understand? Is she okay? You know, to try to help, you know, maybe I can go out, get our child life, get our, our different counselors available or whatever. And uh, she's like cracking jokes about it. <laughs> and I was like, uh, that's what I did. <laughs> I did the same thing. But uh, sh the doctor came in while I was doing some stuff and he explained some things to her and she goes, oh, so it's, you know, whatever. And the parents are like, how did you know that? And, and we were all just kind of 
like amazed that this 14 year old girl understood the deep medical stuff going on mm-hmm. um come to find out she had been googling stuff while she's sitting there but also she had had a class that was essentially like a anatomy and physiology so she understood already um but that's just one example of a kid who knew more than we expected but uh, most of them do and it's surprising sometimes <laughs> i think that that's the embodied wisdom even if she has google at her disposal mm-hmm. to be able to recognize that just like everyone else we carry and children carry incredible understanding in our embodied selves and when mm-hmm. we are willing to be really honest about what we're facing we can take in information in a way that changes how we approach it, how we approach the situation, how we approach ourselves, how we handle new information coming in because we are able to metabolize it through instead of just storing it and holding it in our body for another time. Yeah, that's a really good way to say it. With, With my personal cancer story, I I knew I would not do well if I did, I'm kind of a nerd. So when I hear about something I don't understand, I dive into it deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I was diagnosed with melanoma, my first inclination was to like go to the library and start researching. But I was like, ah, I don't know. I think this time I'm going to kind of, I, I pretty much chose ignorance, <laughs> honestly. And I was better for it because years later, when I learned medical things, when I learned what was actually going on, I was amazed my doctors always called me the miracle child and i'm like yeah you tell everybody that but yeah no there's like a what did i figure out it's like a less than a 0.001 percent chance of surviving as long as i have and had i known that i would have been a lot more worried at the time (laughs) well and not to mention leaning into the fear that also affects the way your body responds to things too Mm -hmm. Like your own embodied wisdom said, nope, just, just play dumb. Just trust the environment and the people you're with. That's incredible. Yeah. I actually just, I took a a neuroscience class just this past semester. And uh, I essentially learned that that might've saved my life. Like my ignorance and the, the various uh, endorphins and neurotransmitters and such that my body was producing in my ignorance helped me a lot. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The way that we mean, don't Google this. In such an aggressive way, like do not Google it. Truly. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's not gonna help you. Yeah. We no. gosh, and I mean I've done it with my own kids, Googled stuff that was going on that I didn't understand. But like so often most of what I do in the hospital is translating the medical stuff for the parents, alleviating the Google fear. You know, it's yeah. that's a big thing. If there's a parent listening to this and you want to Google something about your kids, don't talk to a doctor and then look up what they say. (laughs) Like you need someone to translate it. Well, and I think too, we recognize or we fail to recognize rather that what's in the headlines are the sensational things, the abnormal, unusual, the case studies are typically based on the, we've never seen this before cases. Mm -hmm. When Mm -hmm. we were told that for someone in my family, I looked right at the doctors and I said, okay, but does that mean you're going to pour all of your resources in or are you just acknowledging, oh, we've never seen this before and walking away because what you've just done is push us to a precipice. Now mm-hmm. I'm either going to go off the rails trying to solve the problem without you, or I'm mm-hmm. going to rely on your medical expertise and I'm asking you to come with me. 
So mm-hmm. which is it? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a very good point. Yeah, because if you dig around enough, you'll hear the parents with the stories where the they were kind of like brushed aside and they had to do everything themselves or you know whatever. And you never want to be that be the person who did that to a patient. <laughs> that's never good. Yeah. Okay, Lee, we have to wrap this up, but I want to do Uh-oh, darn <laughs> one more thing. I know. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, I want to talk about Bluey just a little bit more. Oh yeah. Okay. Because because it's so good. Okay, you're a parent of three, almost four. Well, technically, you're a parent of four. Yeah. Only yeah. three watching Bluey. What would you say to the parent who has a kid that's grieving, who's watching shows like Bluey that are very confrontational with the most gentle touch ever? of these very real life situations, whether it's loss, whether it's infertility, there's this great episode about nightmares and there's an episode about parent law. Like there are so many vulnerable episodes. And if you are the parent, that's just like, okay, go put your kid in front of the TV and not worry about it. Like this is the show that's going to make your children ask questions. What would you say to the parent that's like, oh my gosh, I don't want my child to watch Bluey because I'm afraid of addressing all these all these conversations or I don't know how to handle their questions. So now my kid can't watch Bluey. Yeah. That was actually something that we, we dealt with. I didn't really know anything about Bluey. Um, I just was like, it's a cartoon. My kids want to watch TV. I need to make dinner. Sure. Yeah. Which resulted in me being blindsided by a bunch of stuff that I wasn't ready to talk about with them. Um, but honestly, it's a fantastic resource. Uh, we have, we've sat down and watched some things and they've brought things up that they've seen in the show. Um, and I kind of wish they w- would ask more questions now because I've, I've watched a few more of the episodes with them and I'm like, Oh, why didn't you ask me about that? But you know, it, it, um, it takes some of the big things and breaks them down into ways that kids can understand. So even if you think, Oh, they're a bit young for whatever situation, you know, the death or, whatever um even anger whatever the case the case may be in the episode it it's at least a good starting point for them to understand it kind of sets the foundation for them to understand whatever the topic is but also a way to respond to it and it validates their feelings about stuff that was one of the things i noticed it doesn't shy away from the sadness or whatever being scared um and my kids kind of adopted some of the 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 dog's habits um especially my three-year-old he had trouble talking and so he would actually imitate the dogs sometimes when he was feeling sad or scared he would imitate their the sounds they would make and i'd be like oh wait i know this one (laughs) i know how you're feeling now oh wow yeah I found myself watching it a couple of times without the kids and I don't know, judge me if you want. I don't care. <laughs> no, I agree with you. And I love that watching it with our kids, I think allows us to start conversations differently because, you know, it's like those animated movies that are made for adults when those jokes just go right over the kids' heads. And then you're like, wait a minute. I bet there are concepts in their own shows that might be going over their heads too. Let's unpack this a little differently and in a gentle way. And I think that it's, I honestly think Bluey is like a miracle parenting tool. It's so valuable because it also invites us as parents who are going through reparenting or who didn't necessarily have access to conversations like this that we needed 
as little kids to then invite our younger self back to the table and be gentle and kind and loving and help the entirety of our group, our, our home, our family dynamic to find a new way to focus on the things that change our lives down the road that really help us healthfully analyze what we're learning and experiencing. And so we're not then faced with, you know, thousands of dollars in therapy bills later. I joke that <laughs> I joke that, yes, darling, I'm trying to help you save for college. I'm also helping you save for therapy. Don't worry. Like that resource <laughs> will always be available to you because I, I was younger and I would joke about, because I know I'll be the source of it. But also now I'm like, because I'm sure that I'm screwing up and I'm oh, yeah. sure I'm affecting you. And I'm not going to take that. And personally, I'm going to recognize that every single human is making mistakes and having human moments. And how do we correct them as best as we can in the moment, but also shift the way we show up going forward. And I'm like, you know what? Honestly, Bluey is a great tool for that. <laughs> yeah. For parents and for kids. Yeah. yeah and I've, the first time I sat down and watched it uh, with my kids, they had seen like all of them. And I, I pretty much used the TV as a babysitter up to that point. Sure. And uh, we sat down one day. I was just exhausted, and I'm sitting there watching it with them. And I'm like, "Oh, this is like, I should be taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> like, what do I do with this?" Yeah, and yeah, it's really good. <laughs> and there's such short little episodes too. It's which is another great example of the fact that you can get a stronger message across with fewer words. Yes, it's fantastic yeah. for people with ADHD. I love yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> it works out great. Uh, Lee, thank you so much for making time. I realize this is kind of a, an offbeat conversation. I just loved it. I'm so grateful that you exist in the world and that you're changing those little lives, both in your family, but also at the hospital. It means, it means a lot to know people like you exist. That, uh, it means a lot that you say that to me. I kind of got tears in my eyes a little bit, but it's all right. <laughs> I won't tell. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to episode 97 of Restorative Grief. The Bluey approach, as we are now calling it, has actually transformed the way I show up for my own child. The example of these little blue healers and how they incorporate play into every aspect of being an adult is a reminder of how we heal from the little and the big wounds we encounter. So if you've never seen the show, it is time. This is your invitation. Become a Bluey fan like the rest of us, even if you're not a parent, because the reminder of play and compassion for self and others will transform the way you think and feel about life. If you are a parent or you work with little kids, I also highly recommend the book we referenced, The Whole Brain Child, as it can help you better understand the way our kids are framing their information and how they build containers for their own understanding and survival. What looks like resilience is so often much more because our kids don't know what's going on and they deserve parents and caregivers who want to understand and help them thrive. If this is your first time listening to the show, I'm so grateful you're here. I hope this was a fun episode to listen for the first time and hit that subscribe button, leave a five-star review, tell a fellow parent or someone you know with small kids about the Bluey approach, invite them into our new secret and just go enjoy your life. Go play today. Go give yourself an opportunity to be lighthearted and to exhale deeply all of the things that you've been carrying because this is an important aspect of life and as adults and especially as grievers we do not offer ourselves that respite and that grace often enough and as always one last thing please remember 
the only solution for grief is to do the work of grieving. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week.